Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by Spalding University's Sina Jeter Naslund, Karen Mann Graduate School of Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to the podcast. So, do you think they dance ballet in Appalachia? Ballet is not a dance form people generally associate with Appalachia, eastern Kentucky and southern Ohio, but it is central to the lives of many who live in that region. This is according to Dr. Edwina Pendarvis and her book, Another World, Ballet Lessons from Appalachia. Dr. Pendarvis is a member of our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau and is a board member of the Jesse Stewart Foundation in Ashland, Kentucky. She was born in Floyd County, currently lives in Huntington, West Virginia, not far from Marshall University, where she taught and conducted research for 30 years. And it's uh, indeed uh, an honor, uh, Dr. Pendarvis, to have you on our podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. And I must say that we've done um, a number of podcast over the years with uh, historians and scholars and musicians and TV stars. and But I don't know if we've ever really talked about the subject of ballet in Appalachia. So uh, I'm intrigued by uh, your interest in it and uh, how you first began to think about this. And I'll just have to start by saying, did you take ballet as a, a little girl in the Hills of Floyd County? <laughs> Not in Floyd County, but in Pike County, I did. In Pike County, Kentucky. But what got me interested in it really was, uh, well, my field is gifted and talented development. You know, how do you, what enables some people to develop, to become nationally known? And why do some people have talent, but maybe not fulfill it? So as I was thinking, my sister and I love dance and we every kind of dancing just about but what I was thinking we loved dance when we were four and six years old she was four and I was six living in Copperston I believe in Wyoming County we were it was some coal camp there but anyway there certainly wasn't any dance school there um, and I thought why do we care so much and then our aunt lived in Huntington so we could go to Huntington sometimes in the summer and we did take ballet and dance classes there we were just thrilled um i get tickled because our ballet costumes in copperston were crepe paper tutus that, <laughs> with matching crepe paper bows that our mother made for us well tell me a little bit uh, dr pendarvis um, about uh, some of the other traditional dances that you find in appalachia not that uh, ballet is not one of those, possibly. It certainly was for you and the women that you talked with in your book. But uh, I immediately think of, and uh, please believe me, uh, folks that uh, know me well know that I'm not a, a dance expert by any means. But mm -hmm. I mean, I think of clogging uh, is something that uh, we associate with Kentuckians or with uh, with possibly with Eastern Kentucky and all over Kentucky. But what what are the other dance forms besides ballet that people normally think of when you talk about dance in, in Appalachia? 
Right. And that's sort of how I opened some article or maybe the book about people didn't, you know, you think of flat footing or clogging or square dancing. And I, I asked my uncle, who was a, a young man in the mid 20th century, where he went dancing. And he said he went to the Silver Barn. And I think it, I can't remember. It wasn't Pike County. It was somewhere near there. But it was a Quonset hat where they had square dances every weekend. And uh, Harry Caudill, in one of his books, Night Comes to the Cumberland, he talks about how you could find a square dance on every creek in, you know, in eastern Kentucky. So, of course, square dance and clogging. I did clogging, too, and I, I really like it. Um, but anyway, those and then, of course, the native dances, the Cherokee, you know, we even think of Cherokee dancing when we think of dancing in Appalachia. But seldom do people think of ballet. <laughs> So when you began your research and your interviews with these women, uh, you were thinking that you and your sister weren't the only ones who who might have taken ballet as little girls. And and tell me what um, led you from from that point of just thinking about it to doing the interviews. How did you find these women? Well, there's a technique called snowball <laughs> snowball querying and it's in qualitative research you can't do statistics with it but you start out with the people that you're familiar with that you know took dancing lessons and they said they know somebody else and they know somebody else so that's how it was and so that ended up being women who are mostly middle class like me you know a lot of the women who work as, as I do, but many of them were also poor when they were little. And I think that's real important because they all turned, they all, their lives came out so well. And I think it has to do with at least a little bit with the ballet and dancing and having the nerve to get out in front of people <laughs> and take that on. So tell me uh, about uh, your experience. Um, with uh, uh, those first lessons, I'm sure the recitals that you probably participated in, uh, the discipline that it takes, uh, the practice that you went through, uh, did you take it pretty seriously? I did not. My sister, well, I'll tell you why. My sister's two years younger than me, and she was a wonderful ballet dancer, much, much better than me. So I thought, ah, you know, I'll take this and it's fun, but uh, Annette's the ballerina in the family. And with a name like Annette, you know, that made sense, a French name, she had to be the ballerina. But um, anyway, the first real lessons we had were impactful uh, with June Kahn, and I know, a a lot of your listeners probably know June Kahn and people took ballet from her in Pikeville in Ashland and Catalytsburg. And when my sister and I saw her for the first time, we thought she was so beautiful. She was a beautiful dancer and just a real glamorous woman. We wanted to be like her, both in how she danced and how she looked. And several of the women that I interviewed took dancing from her and they felt the same way. So that modeling of what was considered feminine beauty at that time was an important part of it. The beauty of the dance and then the glamor of the costumes, that kind of thing was important. Well, what was her background? What, what brought her to uh, the town where you took the dance uh, 
and uh, what enabled her to get involved with the uh, teaching ballet to young people? Well, I don't know how why how she started because there was no dancing school in Pikeville when we first moved there. But one of the women, a doctor's wife, a, a Vernon, Doctor Vernon's wife, uh, she wanted her kids. She had was from Atlanta, and she wanted her daughters to have dance classes. So she talked June Con into driving on the weekends to teach. In the high school basement, I remember our classes were on every Saturday in the high school basement, except when there was snow on the mountains and she couldn't get there and then somebody might substitute. And uh, was uh, so you were struck by her gracefulness um, and her beauty, and I'm sure that she demonstrated a lot of the uh, the ballet uh, moves that uh, she taught her her classes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. She was a really good teacher. But before I forget, I want to tell you, it didn't surprise me. I found four connections, four things that made ballet meaning that came out in the interviews, meaningful to the women who took them. And one of them was the beauty and the glamour, you know, like, remember how Dolly Parton would wear sequin cowboy outfits and stuff. I mean, if you've been poor, the glamour is real important to you. So that didn't surprise me. But what surprised me was so many of the girls were tomboys. I don't know if you've read about Wendy Whalen, who's a famous ballerina from Louisville. Her mother was a PE teacher and a coach, and Wendy was very physical. So one thing I learned was it wasn't just the beauty. It was the challenge of the physical moves because we all played outdoors. We all had to walk fences and walk railroad, you know, the steel rail on the railroad and wrestle and climb trees. And so we saw physical challenge as real important and fun. That was a surprise to me, to so many of the women. It was being able to leap really high and to spin. And they said it was like flying. So that was part of the meaning of ballet and and that was a surprise to me. Another surprise was um, the community that was so important that being in a class with mostly girls, uh, being in touch with a larger community and some of us got to go, I didn't go, but some people went to New York City in the summertime. June took a lot of her students up to New York City to Balanchine's, the School of American Ballet, uh, for lessons in the summertime. So, so it was a local community of girls, and then feeling in touch with an art community, you know, a sophisticated community that we thought was, you know, really, you know, really something different. One thing about the book is it's a lot about the history of that time and what girls' lives were like and women's lives were like, because the connection with their mothers was real important too. Their mothers would, one woman's mother took a job as a waitress so her daughter could have ballet classes. And the mothers, of course, made costumes. And and the one black, two, two African-American women I interviewed, the parents had a, a child development and improvement club with the one of the teachers at school and they had they hired a white teacher kids it was there was no integration so they couldn't take it the white dancing school but they hired a white dancing teacher 
to teach the black kids at a community center every Saturday. And they said about 40 or 50 kids, boys and girls, came and took those classes because they loved recital. There were more kids when it got toward recital rehearsal time. That's amazing uh, because of uh, what you've also included uh, in the book. Uh, well, tell us more about that. Let me uh, first of all ask you, you mentioned several things. Did your sister get to go to New York? My sister, she was just a wonderful dancer and she studied at the School of American Ballet. She she danced at the Lexington Ballet and her career later, after she was really too old to dance, she was an administrator. She auditioned people and went worked for the School of American Ballet up in New York. So she lived, she went to New York when she was 17 and basically lived there most of the rest of her life till she retired. Now she's in Santa Fe, but she retired from the School of American Ballet. Well, for a, for a kid in uh, in Eastern Kentucky, a boy or girl, um, a parent for that matter, to be um, to go to New York at that uh, in that time period must have been quite something uh, to have a trip to uh, to Balanchines and to uh, to just witness the city as 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 much as the, the the ballet that they were learning. Oh yes, my sister fell in love with the city, but being from a coal towns. Uh, I, I don't want you to think our father was a miner. I, I, I'm embarrassed that he's not. <laughs> he wasn't. He was one of those bad company store managers. But so we were, you know, when I say coal camps, it was still fun. I mean, it wasn't a hard life for us. We were, and the kids were great. All the kids played together and everything. But anyway, she thought the that the windows in the upper, she had a little apartment real high up and she thought it was coal dust on the window. She thought it was soot from coal dust until she realized, no, that's from the traffic. <laughs> but uh, anyway. Were, were the African-American children uh, and the ones that were in the community center, were they also in the in the coal camps or from the coal camps? No, they were mostly from one was from Georgia, but her family moved to Huntington when she was about four. And the other one, um, she was from somewhere in southern West Virginia. About half the women I interviewed were from eastern Kentucky and about half were from West Virginia, a little bit southern Ohio, but that was only a couple. Well, tell me a little bit more about the uh, the history of the region and, and what what else you were doing besides uh, ballet, uh, some of the things that you observed uh, when you were growing up, and what some of these other uh, 24 ladies in all that you uh, interviewed, what, what did they tell you about growing up in, in that uh, area of the country? Well, the main thing that I learned was how, how important the mountains and the forests, they all played on the hills and in the creeks. It was very much an outdoor life. But one of the things I remember most was not a beautiful thing. It was the 1957 flood in Pikeville. But we lived up on High Street, so our house wasn't flooded. We were lucky. But my sister and I walked down to the railroad track and looked out over this, just this plain of muddy water. And it was, that's where the high school used to be. And um, it was just, you know, it was just so strange and such a devastating sight. But one of the women, Caroline Wilson from Catlettsburg, she lived, she was one of the oldest women I interviewed, and she lived through the 1937 flood. 
she was about um, six at the time and their house was destroyed. And she told me that people lived in coal in box cars for a while, while their house, you know, while they were cleaning up from the flood. And that was interesting to me. I, you know, I knew the 1937 flood was devastating, but I, I didn't know how people coped with it. Another woman from Wayne County, West Virginia, they had, they lived out in the country and they weren't flooded. They were up on a hill, but they had in a four, in a two bedroom, one bath house, 17 people stayed there during the, you know, while they were cleaning up from the flood. So anyway, those are just a couple of things that stuck in my mind. If I, uh, there's something else I'd like to mention that was a surprise to me. One thing I learned was, uh, and I knew that people, theater people typically think of dancers as dumb and, and a lot of dancers, you know, take offense of that, but, but I found in the research that fighting and dancing in evolutionary terms and in cultural terms are very close together. So I was lucky enough to get to talk to Muhammad Ali's lawyer. Now, of course, Ali's been dead a long time, but he was his lawyer from the mid eighties until he died, a guy from Huntington. And I asked him, we talked about intelligence and I had read there are two basic kinds of intelligence. Tacit intelligence is like things you can do, but you can't say how you can do them. Like riding a bicycle with no hands, you know, that'd be a simple form. Um, like boxing, having a genius for boxing, it takes a kind of intelligence, but it's a lightning fast intelligence that's not in words and can't be in words. And so anyway, I asked him if he thought Ali was an intelligent man and he had a lot to say and, and said he was very bright. Well, you know, and of course his, his boxing, a lot of people compared it to ballet because of the beauty of his movements. So ballerinas, things they can say may not be the same as other people, but they may be brilliant in tacit intelligence. Uh, and I just thought it was interesting that so many of the women ballerinas felt sort of insecure because they they weren't as verbal as maybe other theater people. And yet they could be a lot smarter. It's just that it's not an intelligence that's recognized on IQ tests. Of the 24 women or so that you uh, talked with, um, it, it might be that your sister um, stayed with ballet the longest uh, in her administrative capacity and might have gone the farthest, but that's just a general assumption on my part, uh, not knowing the others. Uh, what about uh, how many of the women that you know of uh, continued to to uh, dance, uh, maybe in higher education or uh, or teach when they got out of school, whether it be uh, high school or uh, higher education, and uh, maybe even danced uh, beyond that. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think it was seven. There, I interviewed 24 women. I think seven basically took ballet or, or studied ballet or taught ballet or danced all their lives. Uh, and one's 90 now. <laughs> um 
so but one only took ballet for three months and and I was interested in her you know in hers too and that was connected to intelligence she started school when she was four and she was sort of like the star of the school because she was really really gifted intellectually and when she started ballet class all of a sudden she wasn't the star and she didn't do as well as she thought she should. And also the teacher was not very, there were problems with the teacher. So she quit after three months. That was the shortest time, but the longest time is probably, well, 60 years or so. Cause so, you know, like I said, the two oldest women are about 90. And you, you interviewed them. They're, they're still uh, alive. And they both are really healthy. And of course, part of my message, I hope, is how good movement is for people. I mean, you if you can keep moving, you're so lucky. My mother's 104, and she thinks she was, she was a ballerina. <laughs> she, we have some of my sister's old toe shoes, and mother thinks they belong to her. But she did always love to dance and everything. So is she still moving at 104? Oh yes, she moves much better than she remembers. <laughs> One of the cutest stories is this is sort of not exactly historical, but young one woman. She a lot of them were majorettes in high school. They took dancing, and then majorettes were sort of like dancers. And one woman told me in her band, the majorettes had to do fire twirling. But she said, my career in fire twirling was very short. I caught my hat on fire. <laughs> you know, those plumes. She said, and so I just tossed it on the ground and the band behind me just tromped it out. <laughs> a lot of it is about their life. You know, a lot of it is about growing up, like I said, growing up in Appalachia in the mid 20th century. On the podcast today, uh, we're visiting with uh, Dr. Edwina Pendarvis. Uh, her book is Another World Ballet Lessons from Appalachia. And as she uh, just mentioned and uh, points out, uh, the book is not just about ballet in Appalachia, but about uh, uh, the lifestyle and growing up in eastern Kentucky and southern Ohio and some of uh, uh, the remembrances that uh, she has and some of the 24 women that she uh, talked with uh, Dr. Pendarvis is uh, uh, emeritus a professor from uh, Marshall University in Huntington, and we'll have more with her and a few other uh, questions uh, when we return after we hear from our good friends at Spalding University. At Spalding University's low residency MFA program, creative writing students come to campus for an exciting week of learning each semester followed by independent study from home that fits in with work and family life. Write prolifically, explore across genres, gain editorial experience on a literary journal, and become part of a lifelong writing community. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Talking with uh, Edwina or Eddie Pendarvis, for those of you who are listening in um, Appalachia or uh, Pikeville or Huntington, West Virginia, uh, we appreciate her taking the time to talk to us about her new book, Another World, Ballet Lessons from Appalachia. Uh, Dr. Pendarvis, before we go on with that conversation, 
Let me ask you, uh, you are uh, currently a board member with the Jesse Stewart Foundation? Yes, that's right. Well, tell us, uh, for those uh, in the listening audience who don't know, well, first of all, uh, Jesse Stewart, uh, but the Jesse Stewart Foundation and the work that's been going on in, in, in Ashland, where the headquarters uh, is, uh, for, for many years. Yes, and what they do, of course, is uh, promote and republish many of Jesse Stewart, the writer, one of Kentucky's most famous writers, Jesse Stewart, from actually about the same time of some of the, the women were taking ballet lessons, he was writing some of his most famous things. And one reason I'm on the board is that my mother was a school teacher in Kentucky. And I remember one time she took me to, I guess it was an NEA meeting and Jesse Stewart was the speaker there. And of course, one of his most famous books is The Thread That Runs So True about teaching in Greenup County. I think it was Greenup County where he taught in mm. Kentucky. I mean, he's from there and I think the school was there too. But the Jesse Stewart Foundation publishes his books and other Appalachian writers books. And this, I know they work with high schools a lot and promoting reading programs. And I think they're going to start doing some workshops maybe for te they have done in the past workshops for teachers before COVID, you know, to talk about how to teach literature, how to teach writing, what are some ways to get students interested who maybe wouldn't be interested in most stories. But um, so promoting literature and reading is is basically their charge. In your work at uh, Marshall um, in, in Huntington, tell us a little bit more about um, uh, the work that you did, the research uh, that you uh, conducted while you were there at Marshall. Well, well, first I have to tell you one of my most memorable things that happened to me at Marshall. Uh, for a while, I was head of the Yeager Scholars Program, just filling in, just temporary for a year. And I got to meet Chuck Yeager, of course, one of the most famous pilots from Central Appalachia. Uh, so that that was really, um, it stands out in my memory because that's another talented person, not necessarily talented in explicit intelligence like IQ test measure, but in terms of piloting and tacit intelligence. Anyway, what I was most interested in was poor kids kids from like McDowell and Wyoming County who were gifted and how do we find them? How do we identify them through testing? How do we get teachers? It's real hard sometimes for teachers to know how to deal with really highly gifted students. How do we get the teachers to understand what the kids need and help them fulfill their potential? So most of my research was about either children who were poor who were highly gifted or children who were highly gifted but what whatever their economic background they were underachievers they didn't perform as well as their iq suggested they should those were my two main areas and you uh you spent your career at uh, at marshall uh, on this field yes i got my doctorate from uk um but I went to Marshall right after that, and then I was, I was really happy there. It's a, just the right size for me. You could get things done without too much red tape. <laughs> and anyway, I was, I, I just stayed at Marshall. I didn't ever apply in, to go anywhere else. 
Well, Dr. Pindarvis, uh, it's been uh, great to, to talk with you and, and meet you uh, this afternoon. If you can, tell us one other story um, from your book, uh, whether it is uh, particularly about uh, ballet or whether it's uh, one of your other stories about growing up or that you've heard about growing up in Appalachia that uh, we can end on this afternoon. Okay, well, I'll tell you, uh, it has to do with uh, flying again, that one of the one of the women told me that ballet for her was like, as in her childhood, when she would, in the seasons changing in the hills, and she would run up the hills and to the top of the hills and feel like she could fly. And that's how ballet meant to her, what it meant to her as well as community. She said it was like like a heartbeat that that she could feel the other people around her, the other dancers, and it felt like home. And also, oh, I forgot to mention, many of them connected forests with their dancing because so many ballets are set in forests like Swan Lake and, and um, Sleeping Beauty, so many of the classic ballets take place in forests. So a lot of them mentioned that as a connection. And there's plenty of forest land, uh, hopefully, uh, still around Appalachia, too. Yes, let me tell you what I found out. I think it's also true for Eastern Kentucky. But as I was doing research, I found out that West Virginia, the third most forested state in the U.S., hmm. which surprised me. Even though there are lots of forests, I didn't. I figured there would be a lot more that were more. And I bet, even though Kentucky isn't necessarily in that top group, I bet Eastern Kentucky is. Probably close, isn't it? Well, Dr. Edwina Pendarbus, uh, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, she is a member of our uh, Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau and also on the board of the Jesse Stewart Foundation. Her book is Another World, uh, Ballet Lessons from Appalachia. She'd be glad to. Uh, come to your uh, home, your club, your uh, church, uh, and talk about uh, ballet lessons from Appalachia. And we thank you for being with us today. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.